Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 through 12. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, um, the clock tolling midnight on January 1st is a significant date for a lot of folks. Uh, the changing of a calendar doesn't, for a lot of people, doesn't just mean or represent an end, but a, a new beginning. It's a promise of a new year that will be full of victory and success that they didn't have or find in the previous year. So in that spirit of optimism, they make a series of resolutions, things that they'll do in the new year. Lose weight, learn a foreign language, start a business, write a book, run a marathon, you know, get a raise, etc., etc. Some people do it quietly. Uh, they keep the resolutions to themselves. But a lot of people are very public in declaring everything they intend to accomplish in the new year. I suspect we'll see 19 things I'll do in 2019. Um, but some people are very, very public and loud about it. Um, and many people find these resolutions obnoxious because they're anything but resolute, right? But, you know, we know these people. We know ourselves. One of my favorite quips on resolution goes like this. My goal for 2019 is to accomplish the goals of 2018, which I should have done in 2017 because I promised them in 2016 and planned them in 2015. And it's funny because it's true, right? People make grand plans and quickly fail to follow through on them. Why? Because it's really simple. Uh, you don't magically become disciplined overnight. Because it's a new year. That's not how discipline works. I've been unruly for years. But tomorrow, that all stops because it's New Year's Day. I'm going to rule my life in epic fashion. I'll get everything in order. But this doesn't happen very often, does it? Which brings me to our passage. But first, just a little context. The congregation in Thessalonica seems to have had a significant problem with unruly people. In chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Unruly here can also be translated, and maybe it is, depending on what translation you have, as undisciplined. Just how these people uh, were undisciplined comes into focus when Paul is forced to revisit the same issue in uh, his second epistle. Uh, in chapter 3 of that epistle, 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, 
not according to the tradition which you received from us. So keep away from them if they don't follow our tradition. What is the tradition he talks about? Well, he goes on. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. So they presented themselves as a model of self-discipline as it related to living a life busy with production, so as not to be a burden to anyone. And even though as ministers of the gospel, it was appropriate for the church to provide for them, to support them, but they wanted their example to underscore their moral authority. Why? Well, listen to the next verses, the next couple verses here. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. So essentially, the undisciplined life of these unruly brothers took the form of laziness and meddling in the affairs of others. They didn't rule their own life, and they used the business of others as a justification, as a failure to do so. Calvin says, Paul applies the title of unruly persons, not to those who are of desolute life, or to those whose characters are stained by flagrant crimes, but to lazy and worthless persons who employ themselves in no honorable, useful occupation. So again, the issue isn't that they are caught up in any sin that would normally be seen as scandalous. Right? Big sins, you know, we, we, we order them that way. But it's not that they're doing anything like that. They're just not useful. They're doing nothing useful. They're worthless. They bring no value. They're dead weight. The only thing they bring to, their bo- to the body of Christ is their troubles. That's all they have. Calvin says, hence Paul declares that such persons must be put away from the society of believers that they may not bring dishonor upon the church. It is these sorts of people which Paul says keep away from. These are the sort of people that are full of big talk. They're going to change everything in the new year, but they never do. They get easily distracted from their own business, meddle in the affairs of others, and continue to be a drag on the body. So beware. Keep away from them. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Keep away from these people and certainly don't become unruly and undisciplined. Now, I am happy to say that on whole, I don't think unruly people such as these are a major problem here at Trinity. I don't say that to flatter you have other sins. But I do think, I I do see good things in this church. I do think most of you are for the most part, busy about your work. But let's, let's keep it that way. This is what, what Paul is saying in our passage. He's not rebuking the unfaithful. He does that elsewhere. But here he's exhorting. He's encouraging the faithful. Verse 9, he says, uh, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 
So love of the brethren here. They have it. The words Philadelphia originally used to describe the special affection uh, that family members felt for one another. It's a a special sort of love, distinct from agape and eros and storge. Um, And it's natural to have special affection for flesh and blood. I'm the oldest of three boys. It's me, Justin, and Wayne. And, um, And brothers are born for adversity. Anyone that has siblings are born for adversities, but brothers especially. Little brothers even more, trust me. Um, Emily has a hard time understanding why I'm patient with Hudson when he's not patient with his little brothers. I had little brothers. We fought. We fought a lot. Um, I never slapped them. I did hit Alex in the back, or Justin, in the back of the head with an apple once. It was funny, but uh, no one else can do that, right? I can. You can't. I can hit him with an apple. I had a good reason. We used to smack him around. And you know how it is in family. Family squabble. But then if, if someone starts to attack one of our family members, you turn towards them. Well, wait a second. We can do that. You can't do that. There's a natural affection that we have for uh, those that we share blood with. And you know the, and you know the saying, right? That blood is thicker than water. You know, you hear that all the time. Well, here's what, here's what 1 John 3.14 says. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. One of the evidences that we have been born again is that that, that Philadelphia now applies to our spiritual family, to Christians. That, that natural tendency is supernaturally present among the brethren, other Christians. So I would say the waters of baptism is thicker than blood. That isn't to say the natural family doesn't matter. It does. It definitely does. Look at all the household commands in Scripture. How fathers and mothers are to relate to one another. How children are to relate to their family. Watch uh, how the, uh, the focus on the patriarchs. How we see generational sins. But we just see things being handed down. Obviously the biological natural family matters. The household matters. But what matters more is the household of God. That must always be priority. Now, ideally, these two will align. But Christ brings a sword that separates families. How many have family members from which you've grown distant because of their love of the world? Right? They love something you don't love. They love sin. You hate sin. Right? They don't care about Jesus or hate Jesus. He is your Lord and Savior. You start to be pulled apart by Jesus' sword that cuts us. So the Christian, though, he is never without a family. No matter how many family members God pulls away from you, you're never without a family. There is a love between brothers in Christ that comes from our mutual faith that's deep. For me, most of my family weren't Christians, especially when I was younger, and the church what became my family in a very real way. And uh, I remember in the Gospels where Peter says, Hey, haven't we left our homes and left all this stuff? And what does Jesus say? Yeah, yeah, you did. But look what you have. For every mother you left, you got a hundred more. For every brother, a hundred more, hundredfold. We are rich in the church. We are rich with family. This is our family. Now, they had this love. It was present. There in Thessalonica. They got it. 
So much so that Paul didn't really have to address the issue. He said, you guys are taught by God. And I think this is a reference to, to, the, to the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. When we're born again, we receive a new nature, new appetites, uh, new desires, new affections. Uh, it always amazes me where I meet someone and right away there's like some sort of connection. And you think to yourself, I think this person's a believer, right? I, I, I feel like they're a believer. And then you find out that, of course, they were believers. And I, I look back on some of the, my high school teachers who had to put up with me in high school. And I think, were they Christians? They seemed like they were. And I'd ask uh, mutual friends. And oh, lo and behold, they were Christians. And because there's something real there. We, we, we see this new nature that they possess. This is the glory of the new covenant. That we have the law of God written on our heart. Listen to Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. This is, this is wonderful. We know God. Right? God's written his law on your heart. As you talk to unbelievers, they don't get this. For them, man is just a biological machine at best, controlled by his appetites, by his biological imperatives. They don't know what it's like to be free from your lusts, to not be enslaved to him anymore, to have a higher law at work in you because of regeneration. It's that that teaches us to love holy things, to love people. The Holy Spirit produces all sorts of virtues in believers. Generally, he does it through uh, the means of grace, prayer, public worship, the preaching of the word, study of the word. But there is a new life uh, that's at work in us, and it produces fruit. We call it the fruit of the Spirit, chief of which is love. God gives us love for his people. I've seen a lot of people go apostate over the years to name Christ as Lord and, and then to walk away. And as I review them in my mind, the ones that have walked away, initially I was really shocked, but they do have a couple things in common. One is they tend to lack joy, right? They're very cerebral. They, they, they might be orthodox, but there is a, not a joy in them. And the other thing is there was a lack of love for the brethren. I've noticed that, that they just, they didn't love other Christians. They, they're, they're attracted to maybe the structure and order of Christianity. I don't know what it is. But love, love is something that should be present in all Christians. A love, a holy love, a love that hates sin, that loves people. Not this cheap stuff the world talks about. And so Paul's pointing out that they have this. And it's not merely a compliment. Right? He's commending them by pointing out the work of God's grace in their lives. Right? They, it's, they're not just loving people because that's their temperament. This is something that is spiritually imparted to them by the work of the Holy Spirit. And flatterers, and there's a lot of them out there, 
Flatterers never give uh, God credit. They always tell you how awesome you are, right? My rule, generally, is people that think I'm awesome today will hate me tomorrow. That's what I've experienced so far. Um, people, oh, you're the, I've never met anyone like you. Like, oh, I think you probably have. Um, but, uh, but Paul saying, I see God working in you. That's, that's the sort of compliment we want to give to believers, to encourage them. Like, I see God working in you. Right? I see God making you hate sin, love righteousness. He's giving you love. He's giving you patience, faith. Praise God. That's a good compliment. That's a good encouragement as opposed to flattering them. And Paul goes on to say um, that uh, this work that God's been doing them is is, is uh, significant. He says, uh, you love the brethren, and you practice it towards all the brethren, even in Macedonia. right? So Thessalonica was the chief city in that region. And, um, and they were known throughout the whole region for being Christians that love the brethren. And part of the reason that probably was is the church being the major being in the major city, had a lot of folks coming into town to do trade or for whatever governmental reasons. And back in the ancient day, uh, there weren't lots of hotels and inns, and they usually weren't safe places. So if you're going to travel, you're going to have to stay with someone you trust or someone you knew. And so as you read a lot of the epistles, you'll notice that this is something emphasized in them, uh, that Christians would be hospitable towards one another. And so this gave... um, the Thessalonians a lot of opportunities to practically care for other Christian brethren. That when they were coming in to uh, their cities, they would put them up. And when I first became a Christian, we used to go from town to town, a group of us doing this skateboard ministry and preaching the gospel. And uh, my favorite part of it, other than preaching the gospel, is we always ended up sleeping in some stranger's living room on their couch or something. Some Christian. And so we shared this meal with someone we've never met before. I stayed once in Boonville, Indiana. I'm sure you've never heard of it because I hadn't. Um, well, you know. It's pretty close to Evansville. But uh, with a guy, and we had the time of our life, great fellowship. I've never seen him again. But I will. I will in heaven. I will eventually. I still see this hospitality out there. Um, it's there. But these guys had a lot of opportunities. And these were strangers in a dangerous time. I think we don't really realize how dangerous the ancient world was. We take things really for granted for what God's given us in this country right now. But they loved all these people. And, uh, and hospitality is key to the Christian witness in this world. Our love for each other is a demonstration of the power of God. And we'll come back to that in a moment. It wasn't a cold church. It was a warm church. It was a welcoming church. It was everything a church should be when it comes to caring for other Christians. A lot of times people make up their mind about a church. They say, I don't know how people figure this stuff out. You know, they say that people make up their mind about a church in about seven minutes. Right. But uh, one thing that people always cite is like, it wasn't very welcoming. Now, you guys are great. Sometimes I hope that we don't overwhelm people, right? Visitors come and it's like, <laughs> everyone's there waiting in line. That's good. That's a good thing. Praise the Lord for it. And this church was like that and then some, which is interesting because Paul says, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. I mean, they are doing good in this area. 
you'll never get to a place where you've arrived spiritually. You'll never, ever be able to coast. Never. You can always improve. Remember the attitude of Paul in Philippians 3. He says, not that I have already obtained it or I have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had his eye on the prize. The picture is of a man running a race, stretching out towards the finish line, right? He's getting close. Anyone that's ever ran, um, like, you know, 5Ks or whatever, you know that you, you sprint that last at least 100 meters if you can. You go as hard as you can towards the end. And Paul has been walking with God for a long time, and he says, I, I'm not there yet. And I'm stretching hard. I'm running hard towards this goal. And so he's not a, he's not a hypocrite when he says, but a cell still more. Right? It's easy for your eyes to drift off the prize. It's easy for you to become apathetic, to become comfortable. Many people start the race out well, but they don't finish well. It's better to have that bumpy first lap than to stumble on the final. Right? We need to be pushed by each other, by our ministers to excel still more. That is not our attitude, really, in this country. At least I don't think it is. I think we come to church to be comfortable. That is the purpose of most pulpits, to say, you're all right, you're doing great, everything's awesome, and that's it. Um, But that's not how Paul sees it. Or maybe the flip side is the legalist that says, oh, you're terrible, terrible, repent, repent. But look what Paul's saying. He's like, I see good things in you. I see good fruit. Now let's see some more. More. Keep growing. Love the brethren more. Repent more. Pray more. Read God's word more. Abound in fruit more. Keep growing. We need to be consistently urged to excel still more. Paul's saying you love the brethren. Excellent. Now love them more. And the word excel here simply means to abound, right? Their cup was pretty full, but now he wants it to turn into a bubbling fountain. He wants it to to be even more coming out, good works everywhere. And we need to be exhorted constantly to excellence in the two biggest ways is show up to every public worship service you absolutely can. Certainly Sunday mornings, Sunday, Sunday evenings, Whenever you can be with other believers that are being preached to and taught and praying, show up. That's a, that's a huge encouragement. The church becomes, um, it keeps you from, it's like guardrails. It keeps you out of the gutters, man. It protects you. You want to you be as strict as possible as you can with your church attendance. Are you saying that I'm saved by attendance? I'm saying he who endures to the end is saved. And one of the ways you endure to the end is through using, making diligent use of the public means of grace, namely worship. Make it a big deal. The other way is a systematic Bible reading plan. Do you have a way that you come at Scripture? 
Do you read at least a chapter every day? What's your plan? Just when you get around to it? Is that how you deal with your bills? Is that how you deal with your meals? Right? No, you put some thought into those things. So you come up with a plan. We have the plans out here. We have the 90-day plan. That's for you all that need that, that intense pressure to get something done. Because that's one where you fall behind. It's kind of, you can't fall behind too many days where it's like, you know, um, people are reading like 20 books in uh, the beginning of February or something. You don't want to do that. So that might be good for you. And then there's the, the year Bible reading plan, which is what most people do. Um, do one. Pick it up out there. There's enough for everyone. Commit yourself. Do it because you need to be pushed. God's word will keep you from getting comfortable. It'll convict you. It'll exhort you. You should be chewing on it all the time. It's the preaching and the study of the word that will push us forward. It'll keep us from becoming slack. In uh, Psalm 119, David says, I shall run the way of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. God will strengthen you as you study his word to keep them, to keep the commandments. You'll never find, you'll never find any limits in this life. I mean, the idea that anyone can achieve sinless perfection is insane. That Charles Finney believed that people still believe that. They must have such a myopic view of God's law. When you start to study God's law, you're like, oh my goodness, right? You start to understand how far from Jesus you are. And that's why sometimes you need to have other people point out to you, because uh, there's this weird thing, how much you've grown. As you get more holy, as you grow in more godliness, you become aware of that how sin isn't just mere actions, but attitudes. And you start identifying like, well, I got mixed motives. Um, and then you realize, I've got a long way to go, right? I can give my whole life to growing to be more like Jesus, and still there will be a massive change at resurrection and glorification. So give yourself to uh, being pushed. Don't resent it. Love it. Uh, push yourself through God's word and through uh, making the service a priority. He says, um, and then he goes on to say, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. And it's interesting to watch uh, the wordplay here. Ambition to lead a quiet life, right? When we think of ambition... Uh, we think of those that like to call attention to themselves, make a big deal about themselves, make a big fuss. But not so here, because not all ambition is created equally. Uh, for example, the scripture encourages men to aspire to the office of elder. That's a godly ambition. There's such thing as godly ambitions. And uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis that says, our problem isn't that uh, we desire too strongly, but we have weak desires. Right? We need to have stronger desires for the things of God. God, strengthen my love for you. So aspiring to a quiet life is another one of these godly ambitions, things that you should be pursuing. And what is a quiet life? What does that mean? Is that like on Golden Pond? Are you out there like meditating on a log or something all day long? What does that mean? Does it mean passive? Does it mean a very passive life? Some Buddhist idea? no. He means a steady and sober life, the kind of life that contrasts with the fervid, restless excitement associated with noisy minds. A calm and steady life. Right? You think of, of, of a quiet pond, right? A quiet bo- body of water. It's still. Right? Still waters run deep. 
And so that's what he's talking about here. It's a focused mind, not a mind easily distracted by the noise and flesh um, or by the noise of the flesh in the world. And our distractions now are at all time. I mean, they're intense. When people watch TV, they've got like their computer open and they've got their smartphone. And we can't even pay attention to TV. That's how bad it's gotten, right? We're bouncing back between TV and our smartphone. And uh, we're always distracted. We've got, you know, our fantasy football, probably some people. I'm not one of them. But um, people have the things that they're involved in here and there. And there's just no focus. They're distracted by all the noise. We've got music going constantly. Um, This is something I've tried not to do, is always have music on as background. Not that that's always wrong, but there's just a sort of noise that we're always filling ourselves with that's not good. And uh, we're just easily distracted. We use these things to check out of reality. And checking out reality, I was thinking about this the other day, is habit forming. The more you do it, the easier it gets to do. And I've seen people check out reality with video games, with drugs, but also with movies and a thousand other things. We're always looking for something that gets us out of our life so so we don't have to face the reality of things. And so it, it can be easy to look down on some of the things people use as distractions. But it's most important that you find what are the things that distract you from being diligent? What are the things that distract you by being focused on on the work that God's given you? Find those things. Manton, Thomas Manton said, Faith is lean and ready to starve unless it be fed with continual meditation on the promises. And we get that from solitude. That's where we digest God's word. It's real easy to just kind of automatically go through your systematic Bible reading plans and never think about it. You have to pair it with a time of of thoughtful meditation. I find it useful to not have music on my car when I'm driving somewhere by myself so I can just be alone with my thoughts, so I can pray and, and toss over um, whatever I've been studying. Find something that works for you. Fill your life with meditation. In most con- uh, cases, we don't really need much more content. We need more meditation. It doesn't matter if you stuff yourself with little devotional books and, and all that. None of it will have any value if you don't meditate. Uh, meditation can make much of little. I was thinking, my favorite quote from Spurgeon on on books is, uh, master those books you have. Read them thoroughly. Bathe in them until they saturate you. Read and reread them. Digest them. Let them go into your very self. Peruse a good book several times and make notes and analyze uh, analysis of it. A student will find that his mental constitution is more affected by one book thoroughly mastered than by 20 books he has merely skimmed. Little learning and much pride comes from hasty reading. Some men are disabled from thinking by their putting meditation away for the sake of much reading. In reading, let your motto be much, not many. Right? That's you. Quiet down your life. Focus on God's word. Meditate on it. Chew and digest it. Meditation for the Christian is like uh, tea, right? We put that, that tea bag in there and we let it stew. It makes us strong. That's, that's, we don't empty our mind. We fill our mind and chew and digest. And you've got to get rid of the distraction. You have to live a quiet life. It's, a lot of people like to talk about how busy they are. And it's, you know, the old saying, uh, the chicken with its head cut off is very active. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen, but they, they run around. 
And uh, so activity doesn't mean that you're busy about the right, right things. A quiet life will come from a quiet mind. And the mind that meditates on God's law is, is calm and still. Listen, Psalm 1. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. That's why we should aspire to a quiet life. God will bless that life. Where do you start? Well, Paul says, attend to your own business. Work with your own hands. Get your own house in order, starting with yourself. Slow and steady, right? Matthew Henry says, those that are hasty, that are rash and inconsiderate in their affairs, will not take time to think. They are greedy of gain by right or wrong, and make haste to be rich by unjust practices or unwise projects, are in the ready, ready road to poverty. Their thoughts and contrivances by which they hope to raise themselves will ruin them. And this is the main problem of so many resolutions and plans. They're made from a hasty, noisy mind, not a quiet, diligent one. They're pieced together on the fly. Haste has a strong relationship to sloth. I could think of a roommate I had who had lots of jobs, lots and lots of jobs while we lived together for six months. And so you'd get a job. And he would, um, he would get fired for preaching the gospel always, right, for preaching the gospel. Because he's not doing his dishes. Instead, he's, like, debating a Jehovah Witness or something with some waitress uh, at Fridays. And so he would get fired, and then he would take forever to get a job. And so what he would do, he'd get, like, three jobs, three part-time jobs, and God would sleep, like, two or three hours. And he would just work all the time to get money to pay rent which we needed because I could only pay half of it. And I think a lot of us are like that, right? We, we fall apart. We don't do the right thing. We don't have the right priorities. And we think we'll do it all at once, right? We'll get three jobs. We're going to jump on top of it. It's like guys that try to get in shape too quick and end up injuring themselves in the gym because they try to do too much. And what we need is a slow and steady discipline. One step at a time, incremental. If you, had a slug, if you were sluggish in maintenance of your health for years and didn't eat right and didn't exercise, you didn't sleep month after month, year after year, and now your doctor is saying you're in bad shape, what do you do? Well, most people take um, some time to lay out some all-encompassing, like, extreme workout and diet, and then they fail. And that's because they didn't figure into the weakness of their diligence. That, again, uh, discipline doesn't appear overnight, it was too much too soon. Self-discipline takes time. It doesn't develop overnight. It starts by being faithful in the little things over and over and over again until they become habits. So look at your house. Give yourself to a quiet life. Mind your own business. Are you minding the business of your house? What are your finances like? What is your family religion like? What are you spending time with your spouse? Just start to take stock. Make some resolutions this year. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to grow? Where do you need to excel still more? Ask God to show you. Whether it's your health, evangelism, tithing, any of those things. Start to work at it. Give yourself to your household. If you do that, there'll be intense benefits. First, he gives us two here in verse 12. Uh, he gives us the why. He says, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders. 
So the first one is that the name of God will not uh, be mocked. So many Christians, that little fish, that little fish caused so many troubles, right? I know better than put it on the back of my car, um, but it might be helpful. Uh, maybe I should. Anyway, but I think of um, when you see it on businesses where they use Christianity as a way to market their business, and there may be a place for that, but if you're going to do that, if you're going to do that, you better do a great job because the, you've attached the name of Christ to your work. And um, now, look, you're, there's no way we avoid, can avoid this. Your house is one of the biggest ways you preach the gospel. Your marriage, your children, or at least demonstrate the gospel, I should say. People know you're Christians. I'm sure you had people come up to you before and say, hey, uh, what's a book I should read about God, or can you pray for me? And these are people you've never even told that you're a Christian, but somehow they know, right? Um, so you want to bring glory to God by having your household in order. And I can remember when we used to do that skateboard ministry I mentioned earlier, that we would stay in a lot of houses uh, from ministry leaders and see crazy things. And, and it was no shock to us that those churches weren't growing because uh, it was a very external Christianity. Let that not be true of us. We want to have a good witness in our, our community. And the second thing he says, not to be in any need. So uh, when you have your house in order, you can be a blessing to other people, just like the Thessalonians were, right? They had people that were able to come and stay, and, uh, and they were able to, to give and share and support. And you want to have your house in order so you can be a blessing. People that are always up in other people's business, meddling and not taking care of their own business, they end up becoming... Uh, a burden to everyone else. There are things that come into your life by providence you have no control over. And no one resents you for that uh, when those things happen, or at least they shouldn't. And, but there are certain things you bring upon yourself. And if you're repentant, I think everyone would be willing to extend forgiveness, or again, they should. But uh, we want to have our house in order. We want to have a good practice so we can be a blessing to the body, so you can give more. So you can support more. So you're not distracted. So when someone says, hey, I need help. Uh, we need to go pray with this person. Or we need, uh, we need someone to help move this person in. Your life is so well ordered that you can do that. I've been to, in so many churches full of families like this. I've met so many godly rich people. It's amazing. I never believed they, they existed. I grew up a poor kid and I hated rich people. But since I've been a Christian, I've met these rich people. And I don't even know half of them are rich. And then they just they take care of the church because they're humble and they've got their life in order and they're a huge blessing. I know people, though, that aren't, they don't have much money, but they have discipline. And they've helped us move in. They've watched our kids when there was some emergency. They're a huge blessing. They practically love the brethren. So the exhortation is pretty simple. Is Love the brethren more and more by having your own household in order, by fearing God, by bringing God's word to bear in your life first. Don't get busy with other endeavors that, don't, that make you feel important and like you're doing something. Take care of the first things first, and it will it'll honor God. It will make our church strong. It will improve our evangelism in this community. 
And we'll all be able to bear each other's burdens because we certainly will need to. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for oh, the new life that we have in you, the new heart you've given us. And we thank you for this family. I can think of so many ways that I've been provided for by this congregation, and I've watched this congregation provide for other people. Lord, I pray we would not be satisfied where we are at, but we would be like your Apostle Paul, that we would stretch out and keep going further, God. Make us godly. We pray that our witness in Spartanburg would be one that gives your name the honor that's due to it. Lord, make us a people that are quick to repent and hungry for righteousness. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.